Colossians. We are almost done. You happy? You excited? We're almost done with Colossians? Uh, anybody got a guess on how many parts Colossians has been? Because I've lost track. I think we're on about part 19 of Colossians, all right? It's been about 14 years since we started in Colossians. And uh, we're coming to the end, though, I promise. We're going to finish up and actually get into uh, verse 1 of chapter 4, and then you've probably got two messages left to cover Colossians. I hope it's, uh, I hope it's meant something to you. I hope you've gained something from it. Can you imagine being the, uh, the first century Christian without your New Testament? The New Testament is sort of just coming together around you, right? The Apostle Paul is writing letters to your church, you know, and it's, it's fresh, it's new. This thing about the Holy Spirit has just, just recently happened. The crucifixion uh, is, is something that, that many of the believers saw. The resurrection is something that they were a part of. They, they saw the risen Christ and now they're, they're living it out. He's risen and gone now and they have the Great Commission, but they've got to live this thing out and now they're coming together in huddles, right? And they're just kind of coming together in house churches and wherever they could meet and they're banding together because they realize instinctively we need one another to get through this. And, and I don't have all the information and, and I've been saved, I've been born again and, and I'm still trying to figure out all of what that means. And now this guy, Paul, that I've never really met, but he's writing letters and we're getting them here and then we're passing them around to other churches and, and, and we're getting more information. Imagine how difficult it would have been for them without the completed New Testament. Many of them had much of the Old Testament, but a lot of that came by word of mouth. I mean, imagine the struggle of a first century church like those who were at this location of Colossae and the surrounding towns just trying to get any information they could. Imagine how, how confusing it might be as people who had misinformation about what Christianity is supposed to be are bringing that to your family, bringing that to your house church, to your congregation and saying, hey, I think Christianity means this, or no, I think what, what Jesus really meant was this, and, and if we're going to be Christians now and not Jews uh, any longer, if this has been the Messiah, I mean, what does that mean, and what about the Gentiles, and how do we, how do we put all that together and, and work it all out? Imagine just how difficult that would be, and so it's very helpful for them to get Paul's letter, and Paul's letter has this great intent of correcting any, any false illusions of what Christianity might be. For those first believers. A lot of their misconceptions about which, what Christianity is or was at their time have carried on, we realize, into even our generation. We have a lot of the same questions. We, we struggle with a lot of the same stuff. The letter to the Colossian church is extremely helpful in that, in that Paul answers some of the questioning, questions about well, what actually should my Christian life now that I'm in Christ, what does it look like? What, I mean, what is genuine, authentic Christianity look like? And is it what this guy's been saying? And is it what what we're hearing over here? Paul comes back and he says, let me give you, let me give you some clarity. Have you, have you examined this? Remember what he's done for the past few years? He said this Jesus was the real deal. He, he, he was who he said he was. And he really died. He was, he was a real God-man who, who really died. And, and what he left us changes everything. Christianity should change everything, Paul says. Let me give you just some key points that we've already seen now in the first three chapters of Colossians. Number one, true Christianity changes everything. That's a, that's a baseline principle that Paul is trying to get at. True Christianity, everything. And I don't think my mic's working. Thank you. 
try and replug here. Holding the mic. Bruce, will you just come up here and hold this mic in front of me? Yeah. All right. I'll stop moving. All right, let's try this one, and I'm just going to talk loud, and maybe this one will come back on. Who knows? Where am I? Some key points, what we've already seen now, is we're, is we're getting ready to wrap up Colossians. Paul wants them to know that true Christianity essentially changes everything. Meaning that life just doesn't go on as it was before when you add Christ to your life. Christ is not just an add-on. True Christianity isn't, he would say, just following rules. It's not about legalism, checking the boxes, trying to do all the right things. That's not what Christianity is, but people were trying that. People had summarized Christianity as, let's just try and be better. Paul says, that, that's not it. True Christianity isn't just acting in some super spiritual, mysterious, or mystical way either. Mysticism isn't it, Paul would say. That, that's, not, that's not the basis of our Christianity, that you act weird. That, that's not going to be it. But people were trying that. They, they thought in some different ways if they, just, if they could muster some sort of spiritually, uh, spiritual activities in their life, and then somehow that, that measured up to appeasing God. And just like legalism, mysticism wasn't going to work. True Christianity isn't just avoiding the wrong things or even the pleasurable things in life to the point of your own injury. In a word, it'd be asceticism. It's not just cutting out all the apparent bad things in life. So it's not just about a list of things that I should do. It's also about a list of things I shouldn't do. And Paul says, that's not it either. For people who were kind of shaping their own form of Christianity, Paul's shooting holes in it now with the letter to the Colossians. No, that's not it. No, it's not about that. No, that's not it either. And he wraps it up by saying that true Christianity isn't some man-made philosophical attempt at morality. That doesn't hold any water. That's not going to appease God. The truth of Christianity is that a God-man really died to pay a real debt of real sin. That our mere faith in Him is the cause of a heavenly transaction to our account that results in our life being transformed by the One who has purchased it. The terms of that great transaction include Him taking full residence within us and full right to renovate as He sees fit. You see the difference? Let's try and follow the rules. Let's try and avoid these things. Let's try and act more spiritual. Is that it? No. Paul says those are just your philosophical answers to the great sin debt. But they don't hold any water. The only thing that works is Christ. And the debt that he pays with his blood. I just saw my brother wearing glasses for the first time and it's thrown me off completely here. Everybody turn around look at my brother wearing glasses. Good night. Okay. All right. Where am I at here? The truth of authentic Christianity is that um, Christ, His life, infects the totality of ours. That's what it boils down to. True Christianity, Christ in us, it's, it's this total impact. 
It's a complete transformation. It infects and it transforms everything about us. It's not an add-on. It's not a list of do's or a list of don'ts or things to avoid or ways we can now act and those things make us Christian. Paul says it's something deeper. It's something that Christ has purchased at the innermost of our being. It's not merely or even primarily by our efforts, but by His doing. So what you have in authentic, real-deal Christianity is not an outward human attempt at religion hoping to appease God, that is, a God who is afar off, but a God-initiated transformation that happens from the inside out. That's, that's authentic Christianity. It's a change in our very constitution. See the difference? Uh, by the way, does that sound like it'll make a difference in your day-to-day living? Does that sound like it makes a difference in, in relationships within your life? I think that sort of thing makes the real difference. Um, so, after a lengthy general explanation of what that looks like in the first half of chapter 3, you remember what he did? He started nailing us specifically. Wives and husbands, husbands and wives, children and parents, parents and children. I mean, he went through this whole, this whole list of just general how we walk out our Christianity since Christ is in us and we are in Christ. What does it look like now to be transformed and how does that impact our life and all the relationships that, that make up our life? And he says, Here, here's what it looks like. Remember things like forgiveness and patience and long-suffering and gentleness and kindness, all those general themes. And then he, and then he turned to wives and said, wives, specifically you, you get transformed. Husbands, you need to be transformed. Children, you get transformed. Parents, how you handle your children, that changes. And so he dealt, he dealt with some specifics of the home. And here's where we land today. In verse 22 of chapter 3, we'll go down through verse 1 of chapter 4. Verse 1 of chapter 4 should probably be the last verse of chapter 3, but they didn't ask me. And so you've got it there in your translation as the first verse in chapter 4. He's now going to go from the home to the specific relationship or community of your workplace. That would be the modern, the modern look at these next verses. So the home, there's a change. Christ infects everything about the home, doesn't he? What about the workplace? Now he, 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 gets, he gets specific about this, this large portion of our life. In broad strokes, life is basically family and work, isn't it? Is that, I mean, is that a fair, is that a fair statement? Life is essentially your family and your work. In broad strokes, that's the totality of it. And Paul now is going to hit on that second major category. He focuses on the home, the relationships there, and now he's going to say, here's about your career. Here's about the rest of your life, essentially. Now, watch this. Chapter 3, verse 22. He's going to use some language here that we in modern America especially, we don't like. But just hold on, and I'll give you a little bit of explanation maybe as we go. But don't get too caught up here. Slaves in all things obey those who are your masters upon earth. Not with external service as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Slaves and masters were the common workplace of the day. Some were in charge and some were not. 
Now, I'm not going to preach a message today about the institution of slavery in the first century and what Paul thought of it necessarily or what Christians were to think about it necessarily and what they should have done to combat it. That's another sermon for another day. The reason it's another sermon for another day is because I think it, it bogs down Paul's intent or the flow of his argument here. Paul's not, not trying to combat the institution of slavery in his day, although I'm sure he had some very strong feelings against it. He's going to take a stand in the midst of that institution, and I think the stand he takes infects the whole thing, and it will change it from the inside out. And that, frankly, is the intent of the whole, the whole context anyway, is an inside-out change, not just an add-on change. So hold on, don't get bogged down in the slave-master thing, all right? But just put it in the context, if you will, for now, of the boss and the employee, the employer and the employee. And, and you would fit in that first century or you would fit today in one of those categories. Okay? So let's keep it, keep it broad for now. So you, employees, in all things, obey. Literally, it would be the word here. Listen to those who are your masters on earth. Not with external service or literally not with just eye service. And that's a unique term probably used first by Paul here. Not just with eye service as those who merely want to please men. Essentially what he's saying here is as an employee, as a worker, don't be the guy who just works hard when your boss is watching. Why? That's not fitting of a believer. It's not fitting of a Christian worker. So in context here, he's been correcting it. What does a Christian wife look like? What does a Christian husband? What does a Christian child? What does a Christian parent look like? A father specifically. Here's what a Christian employee, and then in a moment, a Christian employer is going to look like. A Christian employer who's actually a Christian, authentic Christian. You're not just adding Christianity and you're trying to play Christianity without Christ. But one who's been transformed, one who's been born again, when he is an employee, he obeys the things that his master says, even here on this earth. And he doesn't just do it when his master is watching, when his boss is watching. He does it at all times. Why? Why does he do what he does? He does it with sincerity of heart. Look at the last phrase, fearing the Lord. Notice, notice the how, it's with sincerity of heart, but also notice the who. The who is the Lord. Paul doesn't call us as employees to honor our employers because of the good of our employer, because he's the greatest employer we've ever had. You notice the basis for calling us to do the best job we can do even when the boss isn't watching? The basis is the who in the verse. Who is it? It's the Lord. We act the way we ought to act as employees because we have a boss above our boss here on earth. We do it out of a fear or a reverence for the Lord. What is he saying? He's essentially saying what he's been saying. Christianity impacts everything. It changes things when you leave here and when you leave your house and when you go to work. Employees, you should be different. There should be a sincerity of heart. There should be a, a sincerity in the effort you give to your work. How many of us can say that we give a full sincerity of effort to our work. Many of us would say, well, uh, because of the way I get treated, because of what I get paid, I'm only going to give this amount of effort. Paul blows that out of the water and he says, you work with a sincere effort in your heart. Why? Because your work is under the Lord. 
You do it with a reverence for your God. It changes who you are. Keep going. Verse 23. Whatever you do, do your work heartily, or it might be translated from the soul. Do your work from the depths. Do your work from, from, from the depths of your heart as for the Lord rather than for men. No matter how small or seemingly unimportant, you can make your work worship. Do you realize that? we got a couple folks here that are kind of retired from their main career and they work at Publix and every now and then I, I show up in Publix and I see, see one of our guys back there cutting fruit. And I think back to what his career looked like in the, in the, in the, in the main part of his life and now he's, he's cutting fruit with a giant smile on his face. And it's always encouraging to me because he's cutting fruit under the Lord as far as I could tell. And I don't think they have to tell him to do a good job because he, he's just working out of his reverence unto the Lord. Being in Christ has, has changed him. It, it, it should change us. It makes an impact. No matter how small the job is, whatever you do, do your work from the heart. Look at the who once again. It, 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 he talks about the how. Verse 22, we do it with sincerity of heart. Verse 23, we work heartily. Those are the hows. But in both verses, it's because of the who. Fearing the Lord, verse 22. Verse 23, because we do it for the Lord rather than for men. Do we do it for men? Yeah, you do it for your boss. But there's someone above that even. That if you don't like doing it for your boss, guess what? You can, you can very simply do it for the Lord. Do you know that no matter how small, how tedious, no matter how, uh, how difficult, whatever the job may be, you can do your job unto the Lord. You could make your work worship. Have you ever thought about that? Do you realize that your Christianity should change who you are in the workplace? It infects everything. Verse 24. Knowing that from the Lord, we get the who again, you will receive the reward of the inheritance. Now that's interesting because no slave gets an inheritance, do they? What an irony. But in Christ, there is an inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of your inheritance. Does it matter if your boss pays you well or not in how you decide to do your job? It shouldn't, Paul would say. Paul would say no matter how they reward you, you need to realize that you're getting a reward. And it may not be a reward on this earth. It may not be a reward by your employer. But you should do that job with the heart that says, I'm going to do the best job I can because I'm not just doing it for my employer, whether he's sorry or not, I'm doing it for a Lord who is faithful. And so I'll work as I'm working to him. And you can count that as worship. You can count that as a blessing to the Lord because he's changed you. He's changed you. Again, the who is emphasized. Could be seen here as a command. End of the verse. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. It's not just a statement. It could be that in the Greek you could put an exclamation point at the end of that sentence. When he says, it is the Lord Christ whom you serve, in, in, the, in the language that could be seen as a command from the Apostle Paul. It could be said this way, so work for your true master. Quit complaining about your master on earth, whoever he might be, whoever she might be. Whatever your lot in life might be in your career, you can work as unto the Lord. And in fact, that's a command. Work 
as you're working to your true master because you have a master above the one here on earth. Things are changed. Now, verse 25. Notice that not only will God see your good efforts, but He will also recognize your bad efforts. Verse 25 is a sobering verse. For he who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he has done, and that without partiality. That is a verse that's a transition verse. It's talking about the employee, but it's also going to apply to the next verse, to the employer. And so it counts doubly for both of us, whether you're an employee or an employer. And so first we have to apply it to the employee. Listen, if you do a sorry job, maybe your boss doesn't notice. Because maybe you're the guy who's doing the eye service. Maybe when the boss comes around, you look like a really good worker. But maybe you're sorry at the house when you're working at home from your computer. Maybe you're cutting your hours when he doesn't even notice. Maybe you're stealing from the company in ways they'll never see, even if it's just stealing of time based on your lack of heartfelt, sincere effort. And Paul would say, listen, that, that's not what true Christianity is about. And even if they don't recognize it, guess what? That master that I've been talking about that's in heaven, that sees those things, he sees not just the good things that you do when no one else is looking. He, he will recognize the sorriness in us Christians. This is a sobering verse. And so work is un, unto the Lord. Your Christianity changes you, even at the workplace. Chapter 4, verse 1. He pulls the boss into it, thankfully. Masters, grant to your slaves justice and fairness. Two words that in the economy of the institution of slavery were huge. You wonder about Paul's stance on slavery? Using these words right here was a major, was a major statement in his day. That he, would, that he would say that when Christ comes into our life, as masters, we ought to treat those who are under our employment, under our care, with justice and fairness. That was a huge statement. But that's exactly what he says. Why? Because as a master, if Christ is in you, everything is changed. Nothing remains the same. Christ infects everything about us. We don't get to leave the synagogue. We don't get to leave the church and go do our job however we want to do our job. Christ isn't an add-on. He's in us. Employees, it should make a difference. Employers, it should make a difference. Grant your slaves, your employees, justice and fairness, knowing that you too have a master in heaven. How does he challenge them? He challenges them to recognize that just as the employee can work for his master in heaven, the one above his earthly master, the master, the employee, or the employer needs to realize that there is one above him. He's not the final authority. He also has a master. Imagine those words in Paul's day. You who think yourself to be the boss, guess what? You've got a boss now. It's Christ in you. It's the Holy Spirit that resides in you now. And He will whisper to you correction when you need correction. So you need to listen. Paul's goal isn't to fight the institution of slavery in this letter. Doesn't mean he wasn't against it altogether. It would be a great, however, sidetrack to the intent that he has here to fight that battle. The context is real life and how real Christianity impacts it. These were basic facets of living out Christ to these folks. These were the basic 
facets of how they lived out their life. And they still hold weight for us today. Husbands, wives, wives, husbands, children, fathers, parenting. Now I go to work. I said at the beginning, it sounds like an odd statement to say that we try and do Christianity without Christ. But that's exactly what Paul was trying to combat here. Those who are trying to do Christianity without Christ go home and are no different. They raise their kids and there's nothing inside of them that that is changing it. There is no Holy Spirit whispering to them about how to raise up the child in the way he should go. Doing Christianity without Christ means that when you go to work, there's, there's no Christ with you transforming the way you do business or the way you work. But in true, authentic Christianity, there is a change. There's a change in every area because it's a change in our very constitution. So here's the, here's the basic foundational principle that I think carries through this whole argument for Paul so that we don't get just bogged down in the slave-master details. Christ in you infects everything. Now, start thinking about your life. And if you want to think about your career, you can think about your career. If you want to think about your home, you can think about your home. If you want to think about your general relationships, think about your general relationships. But Christ has never intended to simply be an add-on to your life. Do you know that? That's not how it works. You can't, you can't do the Christian stuff and be an authentic Christian. Christ actually resides in authentic Christians via the Holy Spirit. He intends to live and rule from the heart, affecting everything about us. So which statement represents best your version of Christianity? If you're honest, what best represents your version, your own unique version of what Christianity is? Is Christ an add-on or is He everything? Is Christ tacked onto your life? Is Christianity tacked onto your life? Is church a facet of your life? Is the body of Christ a part of your life? You can't compartmentalize Jesus. That's the bottom line. Authentic, true Christianity doesn't work that way. But that's what the first century church was dealing with. Let's try and do a Christianity that means we follow a bunch of rules. Paul says that's not going to work. Let's try and do a Christianity that means we avoid all this stuff. Even if it, even if it causes us pain, then we'll be righteous. That's not going to work. Let's just get more spiritual and muster up some, some mystical kind of stuff. And, and then maybe that'll, that'll do it. Well, those are all outside, add-on things. True Christianity works its way from the inside out. In authentic Christianity, the Holy Spirit takes up residence within you. It's interesting, I was thinking, and I haven't, I haven't completely thought this through, but many times in Scripture, uh, the Holy Spirit is explained, the impact of the Holy Spirit is explained, and often in negative terms, but He's explained in, um, in terms of intoxication. You know what I'm talking about? Uh, in Acts, you see that the uh, there at uh, at Pentecost, guys are coming around saying, hey, what, "What's going on here? It's early. You guys drinking?" 
Something odd's happening here. Um, other passages say that do not be drunk with wine, but be, be filled with the what? Spirit. It got me thinking, you know, what does it mean that when we, when we are authentic, true Christians, being filled with the Spirit, having the Spirit residing in us, what does it mean when, when Scripture equates that in some form or fashion to this, this intoxication? Flip it around. Don't use the negative of it. Use the positive of it. When you are intoxicated, not that any of you have ever been intoxicated, I'm sure, so let me try and explain it to you as best that I can, um, even though I've never been intoxicated. And I can't, I'm, I'm, I'm joking, right? So maybe you have. You're at least smart enough to know that what happens is when you drink wine and you become intoxicated, that wine takes control. And you can't decide what it controls and what it doesn't, right? When you are drunk, that intoxicating agent has its way with you. And you get dumb. It has full control. It's funny to me, we talk about drinking um, responsibly. You see these commercials about drinking responsibly. That makes no sense because when you drink, you become irresponsible. It's out of your control. You can't make the wise decision to put your keys down and let someone else drive. That's part of what happens when you become intoxicated is you lose the capacity to make some of those, those decisions. You, you lose control to the intoxicating factor. But then, then the, the New Testament comes along and says that, that Christ in us should be intoxicating and that you should lose control of yourself. But to the positive intoxication of Jesus Christ, specifically the Holy Spirit living inside of you. And you don't get to choose where he infects you and where he doesn't. Do you get the point? <laughs> Christ in us is not compartmentalized that we let him affect this life aspect, but we don't let him do anything over in this area of our life. We'll let him have us on Sundays when we come to church. We'll let him even have us when we sit at the dinner table or when we go out to a meal. We'll say a blessing as a family, but, but he's never going to have a hand in what happens in my career specific to our context. And Paul's, he's, he's been trying to say this whole time, Christ isn't an add-on. He's not a list of do's or a list of don'ts. He's not just this actions of spirituality. He is in you. True Christianity is, is an authentic change from the inside out. And he is in there and he infects everything just like you would be intoxicated with wine. Now he gets full control. And that's not, a, that's not just a, that's not a choice. That's what happens. It's not what, what should happen, it's what does happen in authentic, true Christianity. I think that's why Jesus even would use strange, um, very, very vivid language that, um, you know, when I talk to people about salvation, every now and then I'll use this phrase just because uh, everybody in America now is, is Christian, right? In the Southeast especially. You, you talk to them, oh yeah, I, I grew up in church with my uncle. I, I love when people tell me, well, my uncle was a pastor. Or, you know, my third cousin on my mom's, you know, stepside or something. He was a pastor. So, what is that? What are you, what are you saying? Right? Everybody, it, just even by relation, is a, is a Christian, right? And so sometimes, to really to get to the heart of the matter, I kind of want to throw them off track and use, use a a metaphor or analogy that really doesn't, doesn't even fit their paradigm. And I say, well, Jesus says you must be born again, right? And even when he used it, they're like, well, is it? <laughs> that's strange. I can't be, how do you get born again? 
I think very intentionally he uses crazy language like that. So that you can't just put yourself in the category of Christian easily. Well, what do you mean? It's not just acting right? It's not just going to church? It's not just doing, doing right instead of doing wrong? It's not just you know being more spiritual? No, it's a born-again thing? What is that? That's weird. A lot of churches have cut that kind of language out. But I think we've got to bring it back maybe a little bit because it, it, it's very useful. I mean, think about, think about the picture of being born again. Did you have anything to do with your birth? Did you? No, you didn't. You were just there. It happened. What do we say? When Allison goes to have this baby, this baby's not going to have anything to do with it. They are going to what? Deliver that child. You must be born again. Can I born again myself? No. What do I need to be? I need to be delivered. Have you ever thought about that? You've got to be brought from the darkness into the light. And you can't swim out. Sorry for the visual, but you can't swim or climb your way out. You have nothing to do with it. If your version of Christianity, and I'll wrap up with this, if your version of Christianity is, is about you trying to uh, keep the outside clean enough or, or fix up your life enough so that, so that one day when you meet your maker, God will weigh your life in the balance and, and you'll, be, you'll be somehow better than you are worse, then that's, that's a fast track to hell, the Bible would say. Christianity is not a, an add-on to my life. I'll let Jesus come and, and, and join me. True Christianity, and this is, I think, what Paul is trying to communicate to the Colossian church. True Christianity works from the inside out. You get delivered, born again, brought from darkness into light. And that, that real transformation that happens from the inside, not just something you do to add on to the outside, that real transformation, guess what? It makes a difference in everything you do, in everything you are. And in the remaining time of your life here on earth, God is transforming you into the likeness of His beloved Son. Your Deliverer, Jesus Christ. The Bible says that, that, that the only thing you can do is place your faith. And that faith, you've got to even get from God. And based on the faith that he, he grants you, you'll have now a heart towards repentance. Faith and repentance. That's where you come into play. And He even gives you the capacity for those things. You must be born again. So as we close, here's what I want you to think about. I want you to think about what is, real, what is my real deal version of Christianity. Is my real deal version of Christianity that I've lived out from from for this many of my days, is it is it adding Christian concepts and morality and rules to my life without actually having a relationship where Jesus Christ takes residence in my heart and my mind and he renovates from the inside out and that's what changes things. Hopefully you see that the there's a clear difference in the two things. Why don't you stand with me? Father God, I, I offer this prayer on behalf of those who, who sit under your word this morning. My prayer is that your word has, has been clear to them this morning. 
that they've been free from distractions, even distractions in, in misunderstanding what Paul is maybe trying to say here. Lord, help us to clearly, to clearly come to, to basic principles of what Christianity is and what it's not. Lord, there may be those here, even, even today, whose Christianity is, is very simply devoid of the power of Jesus Christ delivering them from the darkness to the light. There's been no supernatural rebirth. Christianity at this point has simply been tradition, man-made philosophical religion. It's all been on the outside, not on the inside. Lord, your word tells us that today may be the day of salvation for some here. Holy Spirit, speak very clearly to, to the men and women who are here that need real deal, authentic Christianity. And Lord, when I say they need it, I, I'm not just talking about they need it for their eternity. Lord, I, I know very well that they need it for the here and now. I need, I need you now, Lord. Lord, life, life spirals out of control and I fall apart without you being that, that base, that anchor of my soul. Having, having covered my debt of sin by the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. Lord, Lord, that anchor of my soul holds me together on the, on the hardest of days. And Lord, so I, when I say they need it, Lord, I, I mean they need it now. Marriages need it. Children need it of their fathers. Now. Parents need it so they know how to raise their children. We need it when we when we go to work tomorrow. Jesus, for those of us who, who have you residing in our hearts, maybe we've tried to put some walls up and, and keep you keep you in one one part of our our heart house or another. Whatever it takes, Lord, knock down those walls and infiltrate and affect and, and take, take full residence of the, the house that is our heart, that is your home. Reside fully in us. Completely take over and intoxicate our lives. Fill us with your Holy Spirit to the point where it's not us in control, but you're in control. Take over every area. is true, Lord, that your blood speaks a better word than all the empty claims we've seen upon this earth. It speaks righteousness to us. Save a soul today, Lord, by grace through faith. In Jesus' name, here's our question.